1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think.
0: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chris Brennan wanted to squeeze one more snowboarding run into his day. It was mid-August in 2019 and about a metre of snow had come down a little earlier in the week.
2: Oh, look, it was such a beautiful day. I mean, it was about two days after the storm had passed. The the sky was blue, the sun was shining, there wasn't much wind. It was, yeah, it was was a beautiful day.
0: Chris was at Etheridge Ridge. It's about an hour's walk out of Threadbow on snowshoes, depending on how fit you are. He walked there with his wife, Alex. They'd spent a happy day on their boards, but she opted out of the last run. Instead, she decided to watch from a few hundred metres downhill. From her vantage point, she had a clear view of the disaster that unfolded.
2: There's no warning signs. Um, just the whole, the whole ground just started to move and I, I just sort of took one, one step like I was trying to run away but there was nowhere to go and I just, just sunk down into it right under the surface and fully engulfed in snow and that was it. Just the entire face of Etheridge which just came down on top of me and swallowed me up and took me down.
0: Avalanches aren't something a lot of Australians are aware of. Where most people ski here, they're infrequent and small. But more people are heading into the backcountry, where events like this are a little less unusual. So what is it like to be caught up in an avalanche? And should more Aussie skiers learn how to survive one? 10 News First reporter Sydney Peat with this story.
1: Let's just say from the very beginning that Chris's survival in the avalanche you just heard about was miraculous. But he didn't get into trouble because he was naive or reckless. In fact, a few days before he headed out into the backcountry, Chris had taken part in an avalanche safety training course. It's run by a bloke called Dave Herring. Dave is passionate about his work. He can talk about different kinds of snow with the genuine excitement most people reserve for sporting teams or their kids' first steps. He loves the backcountry, calls it his office, but he's a bit worried about people wandering out into the wild without experience. This is him.
3: Well, Aussies are good at that, aren't they? We've uh, we've had a reputation for being reckless, and I think uh, probably in the last few years we've really no- noticed a change in the culture of people coming into the backcountry, but there are still those that uh, don't take it seriously enough, especially people who are coming out of the resort and think they can ski well. And then they go into the backcountry and then all of a sudden the conditions are changing Quickly and radically, and uh, um, they find themselves in trouble. You know, it's so uh, whiteouts, visibility, weather, uh, ice—all uh, these things are probably a, a bigger issue for most Australians than avalanches. But yeah, there's a lot of novices this year.
1: Dave believes that anyone heading into the backcountry should know the basics, and that's what he teaches in his Alpine Access courses. So, what are they like? One freezing cold Sunday morning, I tagged along. We walked for about 40 minutes or so from Perisher, past the accommodation, off the track, and up quite a steep hill. There were about half a dozen people on this course, a few very experienced skiers among the group. They'd spent the weekend learning about location beacons, equipment, how to read the conditions, stuff like that.
3: What's our first consideration? Safety. Are we all happy to go up and do it up here? Any concerns? Cool.
1: Spread out. Towards the end of the day, Dave sets up a scenario designed to mimic an avalanche. It's a rescue. He buries a couple of location beacons in snow under pieces of plywood. In pairs, the participants carve down the slopes, assess the situation, locate the beacons and dig them up. Lisa and Rachel were up first.
3: Avalanche! Help!
1: After Dave makes that call, both women rocket down the slope. They're at the scene in seconds. I don't know
3: what's, what's happened? happened. I've lost my How many? I think, I can't, I'm not sure. I did have three mates.
1: While Dave talks, they're already unpacking their equipment. The location beacons are set to search and a probe, which looks a bit like a collapsible tent pole, is dragged from their backpacks and assembled. As they get closer to where they think the person, in other words, the beacon, is buried, they start stabbing at the snow with the probe. They're struggling to find anything. just
0: can't find a human.
1: Minutes tick by. 1.6. They realise a second beacon is buried. This one is a little easier to find. It's quickly dug up with a small shovel. But the first beacon is still missing they go back to stabbing at the snow.
0: Oh, got him.
1: Finally, the pole hits something. It's now been more than 10 minutes since they first heard the avalanche call. Afterwards, Dave has a debrief and talks to Lisa and Rachel about what went wrong and how they could improve. From the outside, it looked like a pretty solid effort from two very skilled snowboarders. But it wouldn't have been enough. If those were real people that were buried, odds are they would have suffocated by the time Lisa and Rachel dug them out. That's if they weren't already dead from the physical trauma of being dragged down a rocky slope under tons of snow. And this is what strikes me. Even if you have a location beacon on you, and there are people around who also have a working beacon who are able to search for you, and if those people have the right equipment and if they've been trained and don't panic, it still probably isn't going to be enough. That's what Chris was up against last year when the ground slid from under his feet. And according to Dave, that avalanche that Chris faced was a big one. It took out a slope of maybe uh, four or 500 metres
3: in length. If anyone's seen the photos of me going in there to check it out afterwards, it's it's quite incredible. There are blocks of snow in there the size of buses. It, it's not all, all about being buried in an avalanche and suffocating. Uh, most people die from trauma. So if you survive the trauma, you then have to survive the burial.
1: So how do you survive an avalanche? Well, the best course of action seems to be not starting one in the first place. Chris knew this stuff. Like I said, he'd taken the course. But he still managed to get in trouble. Chris's story coming up after this break.
0: Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. So
1: let's go back now to Chris. It's 2019, and he's skiing in the backcountry with his wife, Alex. Chris and Alex had the right safety equipment and had been monitoring the conditions all day. They had both been so careful, but Chris admits he got a bit lax.
2: Yeah, look, I was, I was you know, I, I definitely made a mistake um, with the way I chose to go back up. I think it's more so, you know, I was, I was excited I was become a bit complacent with you know you know we'd sort of ridden all that morning and things seemed safe. Um, so I sort of chose the most direct route straight back up uh, which was happened to be the steepest most exposed way up uh, which is not the right way to go. Um, and yeah look I, I think I've sort of walked onto a bit of a wind slab which has begun to slide and that's ended up triggering, a major avalanche of just the entire face of Etheridge which just came down on top of me and, yeah, swallowed me up and took me down.
1: Now, I won't delve too deeply into the technicalities of avalanches. You'll have to chat to Dave for that kind of analysis. But I'll quickly explain wind slabs, which is what Chris thinks he walked into. It's where winds rapidly dump a large amount of snow onto a slope. This is dangerous because it can overload weaker snow layers below it. That means when someone puts a bit of weight on the snow, it can slide. And then this will happen.
2: You you get pulled under. um, It kind of feels just like every square inch of your body is just being, I guess, kneaded like a piece of dough, just like your face, your whole body. Um, You can't fight it. Um, It's just so powerful. Um, You just sort of have to go with it. Um, There's nothing you can do.
1: Alex, Chris's wife, didn't want to be part of this podcast she's still pretty traumatised by what happened, and that's understandable. She's an hour's walk from civilisation, hundreds of metres away from her husband, and all she can do is watch as the snow breaks and swallows him up. She thinks her husband is dead. Chris didn't think he was going to make it either.
2: Yeah, look, it probably only lasted 10 seconds, but it, it feels like time slows down in that, in that moment. Um, I certainly had a lot of time to realise what was happening, um, I guess maybe at the last second I'd you know, heard you're supposed to try and swim in an avalanche. Maybe I tried to swim my arms a little bit um, and it was right at that moment as it began to slow down that I just sort of took one more tumble and my face popped above the surface and one of my arms came out and that's when it came to a stop and it was just you know, just staring up at the blue sky and just dead silence. and. Sort of, I guess, yeah, take a breath and realize that, yeah, I was, I was still alive. You know, I had a GPS on me at the time. And going back and looking at, you know, the path of the GPS, I could see where the slide happened and where I ended up. It was probably about 200 meters that I was pulled under the snow through rocks. Um, so, yeah, look, I was, I was really lucky. Um, you know, I had my snowboard on my back and that was actually destroyed, um, had big gouges and chunks taken out of it. One of the bindings was flattened. um, So clearly my back had been crushed against a rock. And if it wasn't for my board, you know, I most certainly wouldn't be here, I wouldn't think.
1: But miraculously, Chris is alive.
2: Once I'd realized that I was okay, um, I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Um, and I was able to then dig down to sort of my waistline. Um, Probably took about five or 10 minutes to to clear the snow down to my waist and take my pack off, um, which sort of allowed me to get my shovel out um, because I was buried in a standing up, fully standing up position. So it was, my feet were a long way down. It's just, you know, you you feel like you're encased in concrete. Um, you, You can't move. You know, if I didn't have an arm free, there's there's no way I could have dug myself out and, you know, if, if my head hadn't have come to the surface, well, there's probably no way I would have survived. You know, you, you, you think strange things in that situation. I sort of got down to my phone and thought, oh, well, I might take a bit of video here. I don't, I don't know why, but I did.
1: Here's Chris on the day, digging himself out of the snow. He's weirdly calm, even making jokes.
2: I don't Get much luckier than that. Digging yourself out of a fucking avalanche. Holy shit. Close. I'm going to buy a lot of ticket tonight. Or I should check the one that I bought last week. Hopefully it's a winner.
1: He keeps going all the while he's looking around and constantly checking the hill above. Don't go too far. Eventually he's free and he's okay. Mostly. Oh fuck!
2: Yeah, broken ankle.
1: Meanwhile, Alex was on the phone, trying to get emergency services to the location and trying to pinpoint where Chris had been buried. She was so far down the hill that her location beacon wasn't working.
2: The biggest regret I have about the days, you know, what she went through, it's, it's far worse than what than what I experienced because she, you know, what I experienced lasted ten seconds before I realised I was okay. Um, she, she couldn't see me from where she was. Um, so it was a good 15, 20 minutes that she believed I was either dead or dying. You know, for, for 20 minutes, she thought she was going to be, you know, putting into practice everything we learned and having to find my body and, and dig me out. Um, I can't imagine how that would have felt.
1: Once freed, Chris crawls until Alex finally spots him. Half an hour later, they're en route to the medical centre with a snow patrol team from Threadbow. A 1,000 tonnes of dishevelled snow behind them. It wasn't until they got home later that night they could start taking it
2: all in. It all just seemed really surreal. I mean, you know, that day after we left the medical centre, I was, you know, put put in a moon boot and we just hopped in the car and drove home and sat on the couch and made some spaghetti bolognese and watched the news, and it just didn't feel real.
1: Chris knows his footsteps triggered the avalanche. He knows his eagerness and his complacency in that moment almost killed him. But he says he's grateful.
2: I certainly was never one of those kind of people who think, you know, it, it doesn't happen here. Um, I guess it's more, more, more reflect, a reflection of my own flaws why it happened, always wanting to push the limits all the time. Um, you know, I guess if, if nothing, you know, if I hadn't have decided to do that one last run that day, um, you know, would have felt like, you know, we're doing all the right things, even though we, we did make mistakes leading up to that. Um, and, you know, I guess I might have become more complacent and put myself in more danger down the track. So, yeah, look, there are positives to be taken away from it.
1: Dave is a little kinder.
3: There, are, there would have been others that may not have survived that. And... Um, I I guess uh, his wife, uh, how she responded was excellent. Um, We've debriefed on it over a beer a
1: couple of times and uh, they did everything right. Unfortunately, the avalanche meant the end of Chris and Alex's season. His ankle is still recovering from a recent surgery almost a year later. But he says he can't wait to get back out there. It's like an addiction and I get it. The rugged, snow-covered mountains above the clouds is part of the country that feels otherworldly. That people want to venture out and explore it is inevitable. But as Chris learnt the hard way, you've got to know your limits and the limits of your surroundings. I think Dave says it best.
3: We have to go out and assess things uh, on what's presented to us and the mountains speak to us and we have to listen to
0: it. That story by Sydney Peed, produced and edited by Stephanie Coombs. I'm Narelda Jacobs. Thanks for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.